Now, some of you are familiar with the character Dudley Dursley of number four, Privet Drive. He's one of those pathetic characters that J.K. Rowling and her series on Harry Potter wrote about. And in this one particular year, his birthday came upon them, and he counted out the presents that his parents had bought for him. And he counted 36 gifts laid on the table. And I don't know about you, but if I received 36 gifts for my birthday, I'd be celebrating. That's more than I've ever received. And yet, as he counts them up, he begins to grow livid because that's the exact same number that his parents gave him last year. And so seeing a temper tantrum rising in this spoiled brat, his parents quickly assure him that this very day they're going to buy him two more gifts so that he'll actually end up with more presents than he did last year. Well, Dudley Dursley is an example of someone who gets their eyes and their their attention gazed upon what they can have in this moment, in this life, in this world. And he's spoiled by it. He can't see beyond what he believes is entitled to him. Now, we're going to look at a passage today in which Jesus touches on this very issue. It's going to come to us in a roundabout way through a story that he told about a steward or a manager. And he touches on things that are very near and dear to our hearts, like our stuff, like our possessions, like our wealth. As we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we've already seen Jesus teach us this important truth. My soul is more important than my stuff. And today what Jesus is going to do in the passage set before you and me is he's going to go, as the old country bumpkin said, from preaching to meddling. He's going to begin meddle with us to the point that that probably we're going to feel uncomfortable. And our temptation is going to be to put up our defenses. Because we don't want anyone, not any preacher, not even Jesus, to be talking to us about what we do with the things that we have. The resources that have been entrusted to us, our wealth, and the things of this world. But what Jesus is going to do is not simply tell us that my soul is more important than my stuff. But today we're going to hear him say, other people's souls are more important than my stuff. And that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. But let's jump in and see what Jesus is teaching today. We're going to call our study today, Kingdom-Minded Shrewdness. Because Jesus is going to be talking about the way he is investing his life and calling other people to join him in investing their lives in a like manner. Now, We didn't hear this part in what Jackson and Catherine read for us in the scripture reading today, but we're still in the same dinner party that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, actually began by saying, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So imagine these self-righteous religious leaders looking at Jesus, having this dinner party with the misfits and the outcasts, the marginalized of society, and in their own self-righteousness are grumbling because he is, he is soiling himself with undesirables. And so Jesus went on and talked about three things that were lost, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost sons. And over the last two weeks, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son and his older brother. And I don't know if those were the best sermons I've ever preached, but those were definitely among the most important. So if you didn't get those, let me encourage you to go back and find those online at our website. Because I think that those are some of the most powerful, shocking, and transformative stories that Jesus ever told. We're still in that same dinner party where Jesus is teaching. And we're going to hear him say some incredible things to us. 
But what should be in our minds is that important truth from the prodigal son, that the father's embrace means there is always grace greater than our sin. So that's where we are as we move into chapter 16. And this is what Luke, the physician, tells us. He also said to his disciples, there, are, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So here's a rich man, a businessman, a man of significant influence in the community, and his right-hand man, this manager, has been wasting his possessions, his property, his wealth. And so charges come to the manager that he's been, I'm sorry, to the, to the rich man that this manager had been doing that, wasting his possessions. And so in verse 2, we're told, he called him and said, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in your, uh, turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So think about what's going on here. The rich man hears of this man wasting his possessions, calls him in and says, look, what is this that you have done? You are finished. Turn in your account of the management I've entrusted to you. In other words, close up the books, turn them in, and you hit the road. All of a sudden, this man's future looks very different than he envisioned. All of a sudden, the life that he had built the influence that he had because of the job that he had with this rich man is now gone. And anyone who hears about what he has done in the community surely is not going to want him to be a part of their business ventures. And he realizes this. And so we're told in verse 3 that the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I mean, he's facing a real crisis here. His livelihood, what had been entrusted to him, is now being taken away from him, and he doesn't know what to do. He feels his bodily weakness for some reason. He says, I'm not strong enough to go dig a menial job, and I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? So Jesus continues, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management... People may receive me into their houses. So he's hatched this plan about what he's going to do when he turns in the books and everything is finalized and he is done. He comes up with this plan so that other people will actually, instead of turning him away because of what he did, will actually receive him into their homes. And so this is the plan. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down down quickly and write 50. This one person had been entrusted with a sum in the form of olive oil. And as I've researched to figure out exactly how much this would be, a hundred measures of oil, of olive oil, would have come from about 150 different olive trees. And the value of this would have been about three years' worth of labor. And so he comes to the man and says, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures. So he tells him, sit down quickly and cut that bill in half. Write 50 on there. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 100 measures of wheat is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. 
And as I looked into this, what this would have been in that day, approximately eight years worth of wages. This was a big sum. So he says to him, write down 80. He's going to sign off on this. And so here you have this man in desperate conditions, trying to make friends with a lot of people really quickly by reducing how much they owe. He's about to sign off the books and turn them back into his, man, to his owner, and now he's just basically cutting bills left and right. It's interesting what commentators think is going on here. Some people think that what he's doing is basically writing off like what would have been his commission. Maybe, but I don't know if that's likely or not. There's one uh, New Testament theologian by the name of N.T. Wright in his commentary thinks this is what's going on. He said, it is likely that what the steward deducted from the bill was the interest that the master had been charging with a higher rate on oil than on wheat. If he reduced the bill in each case to the principal, the simple amount that had been lent, the debtors would be delighted, but the master couldn't lay a charge against the steward without owning up to his own shady business practice. Why would this be a shady business practice? The Old Testament prohibited people loaning to the poor with interest. That is, loaning money to the poor with interest. And so what a lot of people would do, is they try to get around that by not loaning money, but commodities, oil, wheat, herbs, whatever, and then charge interest on that. And so if that's what's going on here, if this servant, this manager, this steward is reducing the bill to the principal, that is what had been lent, then the manager, or I'm sorry, the the business owner wouldn't be able to call him out without exposing his own shady business practice. So as you think about what this manager is doing, what would be your assessment of what he's doing? If you were to think about his strategy and cutting people's bills, slashing what they owe, in order to make friends with them, what would be your assessment of this individual? Well, Jesus tells us what the assessment of the rich man, the master, was. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I was talking with Dr. Long ahead of the service about how this passage has a lot of difficulties in trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. We're told there that the master commended the dishonest manager. And this is an interpretive um, I guess prerogative of the the people translating it here, that word dishonest is actually the word unrighteous. And righteousness in the scriptures always has to do with right relating to other people. I think what this word is meant to indicate was the unrighteous way in which this steward managed the wealth of his master. Remember, he had been wasting it. So I think that's what it's referring here to. And so as the master heard about what happened about how his steward had slashed what these people owed, he, he said, that guy, you got to give it to him. He's shrewd. And as I was thinking on this this week, I don't know if you ever do this, but when you, you read something and you're reflecting on it and there's a word and you, you, you know what it means, but you kind of want to dig down a little bit to, to think on it. I did that with that word shrewd and just looked it up in the dictionary. It means having sharp powers of judgment. Synonyms would be smart, intelligent, clever, canny, perceptive. In other words, this is what the master is commending his unrighteous steward, his manager, for being. For being shrewd, for being smart, 
being intelligent, for being canny. You got to hand it to him. He was in deep, um, I probably shouldn't say that word. He was, in, he was in a bad place, and he did this strategy. Of course, it cost the master something, but the master's like, you know what? That guy, he's shrewd. So let's make a key observation at this point. Jesus told this story to give an example of how clever, intelligent, and shrewd people can be when their own best interests compel them to act with foresight regarding their future. All right, Jesus is getting at this point. So verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, this unrighteous manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus makes the point that he wants to make. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There's a contrast being made here between the sons of this world in the context, this is people like the Pharisees who had not responded to the message of Jesus, who really were curious and invested in this moment, who were, who were bent on making more and more, living for this moment, no matter what it was they said. Those are being contrasted with what Jesus calls the sons of light, those people who have responded to the message of Jesus, who are not so preoccupied with their own kingdom as they are with the kingdom of Jesus who are living in light of eternity. And so Jesus says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is he getting at here? Well, here's the key thought. If the people of this world use what resources they have to further their own interests, how much more should the followers of Jesus use what resources they have been entrusted with to further the interests of the kingdom of God? Jesus says, the people of this world, you got it handed to them. They're more shrewd, oftentimes, than my followers are, and using their resources to think about the future. So Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus says, make friends for yourself. He's speaking to his disciples in this moment. Let's hear him speaking to us as well in this moment. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What an interesting statement that Jesus makes. When I read this, my first question was, what does he mean by unrighteous wealth? Commentators really aren't sure what Jesus meant here. My best guess is he's referring to the money of that day that had the imprint of Caesar on it. Remember Jesus had that saying in another place where he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give God the things that are God's. Caesar hailed himself as the savior of the world. To Jesus, he's a parody of the true savior of the world. So when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, I think for us we can easily understand that as worldly wealth. The resources that come into our possession by simply living in this world. It may have Caesar's name on it, it may have George Washington's or Benjamin Franklin's portrait on it. But use that to make friends for yourself who will receive you into eternal dwellings. 
Jesus wants you to use your resources to make friends who will in turn receive you into eternal dwellings. So here's another key thought. We all think about the future, but often we don't think far enough into the future. That is, into eternity. We all think about the future and providing for ourselves in the future. It can be through investments. It can be through retirement plans. It can be through a a meager savings account. But we all think about the future. What Jesus is trying to get us to think about is way far into the future. Because he says, at some point, your money is going to fail you. What does he mean by that? It's not going to buy you a ticket to escape death. For all that money can do, for all the power it can give an individual, it's one day going to fail you. No matter how big your bank account is, no matter how much you save up, no matter matter how many toys you surround yourself with, it's all going to fail you. I'm thinking of that verse in 1 Timothy where the Apostle Paul says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That is, in being like Christ and having contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Some of you probably remember that phrase, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, right? Well, of course, someone made a picture of that. (laughs) This evidently is an older picture here in an older hearse with a U-Haul behind it at a cemetery. And it's it's a bit of a funny thing because whoever it was in that hearse, they ain't taking anything with them. We can't take it with us, but there's a sense in which we can send it ahead of us. So here's another key thought. Just like the manager shrewdly prepared for his future in this life, so too we ought to shrewdly prepare for our future in the life to come. And so Jesus is putting his finger on something that's very near and dear to us. Our resources, our possessions, and our wealth And Jesus says, I want you to use that to make friends for eternity. And so here's the uncomfortable question that presents itself to us. Am I using the resources I've been entrusted with for the kingdom of God? For what was most important to Jesus? For what Jesus talked about all the time, nonstop? Am I using my stuff to make friends that will last forever? Jesus continues in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Jesus here is getting at our character with the way that we handle even the smallest things in life. And then in verse 11 he says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that worldly wealth, Who will entrust you with true riches? Wait a minute, Jesus. I thought worldly wealth was true riches. What are you talking about here? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus seems to be thinking about wealth in categories that don't have to deal with money or possessions. He seems to be talking about things that can be entrusted to you Upon your faithfulness. I'm thinking of this passage that our elder Todd Kent preached on earlier this year, in which um, this, this wealthy person entrusted money, investments to his servants. To one, he, inv- he entrusted five talents, 
and to another two and another one. The man with five talents went and invested it and received five more. And when he came back, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And from the teachings of Jesus, we learn that being faithful in this life translates to rewards in the future life. In the new heavens and new earth, when Christ's kingdom renews this world, he wants to entrust us with ruling that world. And so much of that is dependent on our trustworthiness now. And then Jesus dials in really pointedly. This is, this is the, the tip of the spear. No one can serve two masters, he says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's highlight that phrase and repeat it. You cannot serve God and money. My friends, I think if there's anyone who needs to hear these words, it is people like us. We are among the wealthiest people in this world. This came into focus in my life when my wife and I and our family were able to spend a couple years in Peru. And I lived among a population, half of which, 50% of which, lived on less than a dollar a day. We were wealthy in comparison to the people there. And if you think about it, we're wealthy compared to so many people in this world. In fact, I read a study one time that said if, if you make $33,000 a year, you're among the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. And so if for no other reason than we've been entrusted with much, we should hear Jesus tell us, you cannot serve God and money. You've got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan once said, but you can't serve God and money. The reason why is because both claim allegiance to your heart. Money says it's all about your kingdom. It's all about your life, what you want to do. Jesus says, it's actually all about my kingdom. So remember, Jesus is teaching these things in the context of a dinner party he was having with the outcasts, the misfits, the quote-unquote sinners of society that the religious leaders wrote off and wouldn't spend any time with. He wants them to hear this. He's speaking to his disciples about this story. But he's driving home this point. You cannot love God and money. And then we're told by Luke, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, when they heard these things, they ridiculed Jesus. So they're hearing Jesus talk about the lost sheep and about the lost coins and about the lost sons. It's the reason why he was hanging out with these people, why he was using his resources to hang out with these folks, that he might make friends with them for eternity. The Pharisees who heard Jesus say, you can't serve God and money, laughed at him. We're told they ridiculed him. Again, I dive deep on this, looked it up. To ridicule means to deride, to jeer, to laugh at, to mock, to scoff, to taunt. When Jesus said to them, you cannot serve God in money, <laughs> they just laughed at him, wrote him off. What an idiot. What a fool. Of course you can serve God and money. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money. 
you know, it seems like today we, we hear about people on TV, these, these preachers on TV who, who invite you to give them all their money and, and somehow they're becoming more rich as you're becoming um, more in, in, indebted to them, I guess is the way to put it. This was happening in the first century too. The religious, religious peoples of that day loved money. Again, I think about those words in 1 Timothy, spoken by the Apostle Paul. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving this craving for money, this craving for wealth, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You cannot serve God in money. We can desire to be wealthy. We can love money. We can crave it. But it's very dangerous when we do so. Notice Paul here doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Money is a neutral tool. But when our hearts that crave it come in contact with it, when we get more and more of it, it has the potential to turn us more selfishly inward, to think about how we can upgrade our lives, to think about how we can invest in ourselves. So let me ask you this. If you came into possession today of 50 grand, what would you do with it? Man, my, my, default, my default mode is to say, I'm going to pay off some debt, I'm going to get a new car, upgrade my computer again, get the latest phone. All right, I did that a couple weeks ago. How often, when we get a raise, or come into money, or get a return on our investments, do we think about, how can I use this to make friends for eternity? That's what Jesus is getting at here. And so he says in verse 15, he says to them, who's the them here? It could be the disciples, but I think he's referring to actually those religious leaders who were sneering at him, jeering at him, mocking him. He says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is Jesus talking about here? Remember, they were grumbling because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And they justified themselves in terms of not doing that very thing because they didn't want to pollute themselves. But they couldn't see they were already polluted. They'd already been corrupted. They loved money. And they couldn't use the money they had and the wealth they had to do what Jesus was doing. Make friends for eternity. That's why Jesus is hanging out with these people. And that's why they were grumbling to him. So Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. He knows you can't serve God in money. He knows that you crave wealth. He knows that you want to use it to enrich yourself. For what is highly exalted among men? Maybe he's talking there about what the Pharisees were doing and withdrawing from sinners. Maybe he's talking about just accumulating wealth for ourselves. What is highly exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
That word abomination is oftentimes used in Scripture to talk about idolatry. To talk about what enslaves our hearts. So let's ask this question. Why does Luke record this account in his historical biography of Jesus? I mean, there are a lot of things he could have told us about Jesus and a lot of things he decided not to tell us about just because he, he only had so much parchment. But why did he tell us about this? Why did he think it was important for us to be able to hear these words from Jesus? I think maybe if we could sum it up, it'd be something like this. People are far more important than our stuff. Therefore, let's use our resources to make friends that will last forever. And maybe behind that is a thought, the number one competitor to God for the loyalty of your heart is the love of money. I know all of us think that doesn't apply to us, but let me just ask you the question, does it apply to us? Someone says, I know what you're doing, pastor. You just want us to give more money to your church. And if you were to think that, I wouldn't blame you. I know a lot of preachers just want that. If you give the Mercy Hill Church, that's your decision. That's not why we're talking about this. We're working our way through the, the Gospel of Luke, so we come across passages like this. And sometimes I'd rather avoid some of these harder passages, because they ask hard questions of me, just like they ask hard questions of you. And so I'm not talking about this because I want you to give money to Mercy Hill Church. I'm actually aiming for something much greater. I'm actually aiming for you and me to be captured by the vision of how we can use our resources to make friends for eternity. So here's our first point of application. Let's do a spiritual inventory of our souls and our money. Why is God bringing to your attention today this teaching of Jesus? What is he trying to get across to you and to me? How is it with our souls and with our money. Does wealth have its claws in us? Are we serving it? Or is it serving us? Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What do you mean by this? Wasn't Jesus poor? <laughs> Yeah, during this earthly life he was. But before he was born of the Virgin Mary, he existed in glory. There with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. All glory and honor was his. Everything in creation belonged to him. The angels praised him nonstop continually. And he left that and took the form of a human being and made himself obedient to the point of death. When you're nailed to a cross... It doesn't matter how much money you have in a checking account. When you, when you get to that place where they put you in a coffin or spread your ashes, it doesn't matter how much money you've made. Jesus hanging on that cross naked, where even his clothes on his back were gambled away by the soldiers, gave up everything for you so that you might become rich. Is Jesus talking about a huge bank account here? Not at all. <laughs> He's talking about the salvation that comes to us. The saving of our souls. And, and with that, the welcome into the Father's presence in the eternal kingdom of God. To be co-heirs with Jesus Christ as he inherits this world and everything in it. There's a place in the letters of John. John was one of the close close disciples of Jesus, one of his best friends. In one of his letters, he said this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And all of us are like, yeah, yeah, we, that's right. Jesus loves us. We know because he died for us. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And then John connects some dots here. He says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the sisters, for, for those that God has brought into our life in the community of faith. But if anyone has the world's goods, that would be us. And sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Remember the Pharisees. <laughs> they had closed their hearts to these misfits and outcasts, these sinners. They loved money. They said they loved God. But here the apostle says, how can you say you love God if you close your hearts to people in need? And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say you love God and love people. Show it by the way you invest your resources to make friends for all eternity. And so that's actually our second point. Let's invest for eternal friendships. That's one of the driving points that Jesus is getting at here. Use your worldly wealth to make friends for eternity, the kind that can welcome you into heaven, into the kingdom of God when you get there. And so let me ask you the question, my friends. In light of what we've learned today, what kind of me is Jesus calling me to be? Not just the pastor here. Put that question in your own mind. What kind of you is God calling you to be? As I was preparing this week for this talk, I had this song come to my mind. It was written by a man named Ray Boltz. 1990, it was the most popular song in Christian circles. It was called Thank You. And it's one of those songs, I mean, looking back now, it's so schmaltzy. <laughs> and, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed that I actually liked it. But I remember whenever I heard it, it always caught me in the feels. And it has a chorus that says, Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you came. And let me read these words. Some of you are old enough that you remember this song. Some of you are like, I've never heard this song. But let me read to you the words to it. I dreamed I went to heaven, and you were there with me. We walked upon the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man, and he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, far as the eyes could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, in heaven now proclaimed. And I know that up in heaven, you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand, 
He said, my child, look around, for great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. So my friends, let's dial it down right here. God is calling you and me to be shrewd, to be smart, to be intelligent, savvy, and perceptive in the way that we invest our time and our talents and our treasures for the glory of Christ and his kingdom and for the good of others. Or to put it slightly differently, Jesus is inviting us to become the kind of people who use our resources to populate his kingdom by making friends who will joyfully welcome us there. So Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people who live with kingdom-minded shrewdness, using your resources to make friends that will last forever.